Morning, church family. All right, there we go. Nice and lively on this cool January rainy day. I think we're just going to get rain all winter, don't you? I don't know if we're going to get any snow at all. All right, we are in a new series on Genesis, and today we're going to continue. I didn't really get to finish my introduction from last week, so it might be short, it might not. You never know when I take the stage. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, so. Take your Bibles and turn with me. I invite you to go with me to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, where that is, it's right in the front, page 1 and 2. Some of you will get there later. All right. Or it's on the screen, to my left and right. All right. Now, as I said a minute ago, this is written last week. Just a couple quick reminders. This was written by Moses. We talked about the historicity of Moses last week. We talked about why we believe Moses wrote that, Jesus' references, thank you, to that, the prophets' references to that, and uh, you have to make a decision between cranky German scholars or Jesus and the prophets. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to side with Jesus and the prophets on that one, okay? And now, today, I want to start to try to enter into this section um, and really think about the, how critical the book of Genesis is. You know, uh, what we're going to read here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what does that mean for us? Um, I want you to join me today as we explore this. This sermon might be a little bit different than a typical sermon, but I think it's going to be a helpful one today. As we think through Genesis 1, 1 through 3, God creating and the God who is. So let's, let's look at this together. And actually today, let's do like we did last week. Let's read this together, if you'd be so inclined to do this with me. Uh, so I'll start us out, and everybody just kind of join in, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. All right, we'll, we'll stop there, because there's enough to unpack. Go back to verse 1 there as we start this. Now, let me make, again, one more plea and push. I don't know, who watches my weekly update on Thursdays? Has anybody watched that? I quoted this guy Thursday. Okay, one of you, two of you, good. There's a weekly update on Thursday, every week, where I give you kind of a snippet and catch up on things to come. Dr. Ken Matthews wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Genesis, and it's very helpful. And here's what he said. He said this about the book of Genesis. If we possess the Bible without Genesis... We would have a house of cards without foundation or mortar. We cannot ensure the continuing fruit of our spiritual heritage if we do not give place to its roots. Just as we have no gospel without the cross, we have no salvation story without the sacred events Moses in Moses' first book. Mm, isn't that good and true, right? All right, so before I start unpacking this, before I start sharing glorious truth from the doctrine of creation here and the foundation of it, I feel there's a bit of an elephant in the room to deal with. Okay, so let's deal with the elephant in the room first, all right? And the elephant in the room, the best, and I feel like this is sort of a silly elephant in the room, but an elephant in the room nonetheless. And uh, to help us to think through how silly this can be at times is, I'm going to quote that great cinematic masterpiece with Jack Black in it, Nacho Libre. <laughs> all right, how many of you have seen Nacho Libre? Several of you, all right, one of the, my favorite films of all time. 
There's this scene where, if you don't know, it's, it's, it's a story about a man who is raised by, uh, at an orphanage because his parents died, and, and he's the cook at this orphanage, and uh, he needs to raise some more money to help the, help the kids get better meals, and uh, he decides he would be a monk for the orphanage by day and a professional, semi-professional, amateur semi-professional wrestler at night. And he takes a, takes a partner with him, and uh, they're, they're, they get paid basically to get beat up every night. It's quite hilarious. But anyway, there's a scene where he's really concerned about his partner, Steve. And Jack Black comes out of the bathroom, and he's in there. He's always eating corn or eating something, his partner, Steve, there. And he says, Steve, why have you not been baptized? You know, it's supposed to be in Mexican or whatever. And he says, uh, I told you, Nacho, I believe in science. <laughs> And it's just weird. It's weird the way he says it. It's weird the approach. And it just, you know, if I could have shown you the clip this morning and thought ahead, I would have. And so let's, let's deal with the, let the elephant in the room of, of science, right? So, um, all right. I, I take the position that uh, Herman Bonvick, who was a great theologian, a Dutch theologian of yesterday, he says this about... Uh, trying to use science to sort of discredit and push the book of Genesis away from yourself. He says, along with materialistic explanations of the universe uh, are parading themselves as science, but in reality are religious worldviews. Did you catch what he's saying there? So there are, so let me, let me see if I can unpack this a little bit more so you understand the point I'm making and, the, and sort of how this has happened. What, what, he, what this pastor is saying of yesterday, what this theologian is saying is that there is a bankruptness to a materialistic worldview, that it will fall short and it will kind of leave you in the drudges and darkness. And those explanations are there to give you what you need to do what you want to do. Right now, um, I'm very thankful, very thankful for the intelligent design movement. Okay, how many are you familiar with that? They call it ID for short, intelligent design movement. This is a group of scientists. Okay, so these are Christ. They're not all Christians. Okay, some of them are Jewish. Some of them have different backgrounds. But what they're pointing to is. The, the shortcomings of materialism in explaining how all of this came to be, okay? And the bankruptness that is there. And the individuals that I'm talking about are uh, Dr. Philip Johnson, a retired professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, who is widely considered the father of the intelligent design movement. He wrote a book in 1991 called Darwin on Trial. I'd recommend if you're not familiar with him that you read that book. Another one, uh, William Dembski. He was a mathematician and philosopher who's written many, many expansive books to help us think through this that uh, measures the likelihood of natural process versus intelligent design. Interesting, fascinating book. Uh, Michael Behe, anybody ever heard of him? Michael Behe, he is a biochemist who has written several books on intelligent design, including Darwin's Black Box. It's another one I would highly recommend that you read, which popularized the concept of something being irreducibly complex. So I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, but um, I wish I'd have brought it over here today. I saw I have a mousetrap on my pulpit down the hall. Don't ask why. I just have a mousetrap on my pulpit down there in the hall. 
And that mousetrap is considered irreducibly complex. What that means is, if you take one piece of a mousetrap off of it, will that mousetrap function as it was designed? No, if you take the spring out, you take one piece out, the mousetrap ceases to function. You have body parts on you that are considered irreducibly complex. For example, your eye is irreducibly complex. If you take the cornea out of your eye, you can't see. If you take the pupil out, you can't see. So he's pointing out to the problematic issues of how would an organism develop part of an eye and not a whole eye at the same time. So Behe's real helpful in that. Stefan Meyer, philosopher of science who has written several books on the topic of intelligent design, including Signature in the Cell, and he argues the complexity of the cell requires an intelligent designer. And finally, Jonathan Wells, a devout biologist who has written several books on intelligent design, including Icons of Evolution, which criticizes the evidence of evolution presented in biology textbooks today. These guys are talking and pointing to the empirical evidence. And let, and let me make something clear. These are not all Bible-believing evangelical Christians, okay? But these guys are guys who have looked at the evidence honestly enough to say, the materialistic evolutionary worldview just does not make sense with the way the world truly is. Now, let me, let me be clear as to why I think so many still hold to the other way, even though we have men like this and women like this who have pointed these issues out. I think it's really a theological issue. It's an issue of the soul. Uh, turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Romans chapter 1 for just a minute, okay? Romans chapter 1. I want you to see a passage here that is very helpful in understanding this. Move your eyes down to Romans 1.18 for just a moment. Okay, Romans 1.18 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What's verse 19 saying? Everyone knows deep down there's a God. That's what Paul's saying. He, they know there's a, there's a, there is an intelligent creator here at work. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or take thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolishness, and their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And look at verse 23. It says, exchange the glory of the immortal God for things resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Now, what I want you to see in this verse here. And thinking about this with the elephant in the room, making this connection here, okay? The issue is, Paul is telling us when we're born into this world, all of us are this way. All of us have a propensity, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it a propensity, you can call it a, uh, a bend, you can call it a, a general setting, a default from the factory setting, whatever you want to call it, Okay? We're all bent, according to Romans chapter 1, to reject the Lord at some level. Now, what's interesting here is in this passage, notice here, there's not an, ast there's not an asterisk here, is there, next to that verse in Romans chapter 1? You don't see like a comma, everybody suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, 
except those scientists. They like hover above the rest of us and they're not, you know, subject to uh, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They get a pass, right? Doesn't say that. So I want you to understand in dealing with the elephant in the room, when we have people coming and looking at evidence, right? They're coming to look at evidence according to the Word of God with a godless presupposition. And whether we like it or not, I, I want to argue this. One of the things I disagreed with, with Paul Tudico at, at ETSU, there is one thing we agreed on, okay? Of all the things we disagreed on, one thing that Paul Tudico and I agreed on, you know, like I've told you before, he's like the opposite of me in every way. Whatever I believed, he rejected. There was just one thing we agreed on. And you know what the one thing we agreed on was? Let me tell you, that everybody has presuppositions they come to the table with, okay? And they read that in to what they're doing. So, you might say, well, Pastor, how do you not have yours? Well, here, here is the issue for me, right? Uh, well, there's several issues with this, right? Romans 3.10 tells us, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. That's your general default setting from the womb, according to Romans. That is your gen so you're going to be inclined not to seek God, according to Romans. I didn't write this. Don't be mad at me about it, right? I'm, listen, I'm in the same boat as you, right? This is how I came out as well, right? The Bible and what we have read today, some people want to make out the Bible. I've heard people say this, and every time I hear it, I cringe a little bit. I'll hear people say, well, the Bible is really a story about man seeking out God. And I want to say, no, it isn't. That is not what the Bible is. The Bible is not a story about man seeking out God. If that were true, you would have to rewrite Romans 3.10. The Bible is a story of God, the creator and sustainer, revealing himself to man. You see, God is the pivotal figure in point. Now, that's one issue with the elephant in the room. On to another issue with the elephant in the room. Uh, knowing then that we come into a world with a fallen heart and a fallen mind. Sin has affected our mind. It has affected our uh, ability to perceive what is true. It has also affected our ability to articulate things that are true. And so science is of no exception. Uh, another issue that we have to deal with here is this. People will come to Genesis in particular and they'll say, well, this is not a book on science. It's not a book on science. It's not a book on science. It's not a textbook on science. You're correct. It's not a textbook on science. But the heart attitude behind pushing that statement is something I want you to examine for just a moment. What is implied sometimes in that is this. And I don't know that people would articulate this quite this way, but I'm going to try my best to articulate this quite this way. All right. Well, you see, that means... Scientists deal in the world of facts and data and what is observable and physically is. And theologians deal in the area of Bible exegeting and opinion. So 
And, and neither shall the two worlds cross, right? The, the one cannot necessarily say anything to the other. This is a false dichotomy that we should not be trapped in, okay? Yes, this is not a, a science textbook that is true and right, right? But to walk around then and say that this book has nothing to say to the scientific community and the scientific world about what they do is flat wrong. You see, when we do that, there is an undermining and an undercutting of the authority of God in trying to contain it to a certain sphere. And the reality of these verses here, Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, is that either they are universally true for all of us at all times or they are not. And so the Bible contains information that is critical about how everything began. All right? So I hope that is helpful as you think through how to treat the elephant in the room, and I hope I'm helping you with that. And, and to further kind of wrap this section of the sermon up and put the elephant to bed, hopefully, I want to close with a quote from Robert uh, Jastrow uh, in his book, Gods and Astronomers. Here's what he says. I love this quote. I actually put it on my Facebook page yesterday. If, you're wanting to, if, you, if you want to write this quote down, let's go to my Facebook page. You can pull it off later. Okay? Here's what he says. For the scientist who has lived by, faith, by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scuttled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer its highest peak. He pulls himself over the final rock and is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. I love it. You know, I love it. So to say that the theologians have nothing to say about that is just a false dichotomy undercutting the truth of Scripture. Now, all right, so that's, that's enough on the elephant there. It's enough Nacho Libre for one morning. It's enough of all that, right? Let's focus back on the verse. First here, verse 1. In the beginning, God. That's almost enough for all of today's sermon. And the Greek Hebrew word here in the plural, we'll see this again unfolded as he speaks to himself in the Trinity. Let me say this uh, in starting out. I have read really terrible children's literature in my life, like trying to pass itself off as good Christian literature. And there's a theme because... You know, you want children to start in the beginning, as we all should. And the theme usually goes something like this. It quite honestly is more akin to Egyptian lore and Egyptian paganism than it is biblical truth. And here's how it goes. Well, you see, in the beginning, it was God. God was lonely. So God made creation. Have you ever heard that before? You ever heard people try to say that before? I'm going to say hogwash because that's probably the strongest word I could use having pulpit manners. But whatever the word three or four declensions of strength past that would be, that's the word I would use. That is completely and utterly incorrect and false. 
The word God here in this verse and as it unfolds in the rest, when he says, how shall we make man? We'll make him in our own image. He is completely self-sufficient. He is completely in harmony with his own Trinitarian nature. And he is enough for his own company for all eternity. All right? Furthermore, that, that doesn't make sense if you just logically play it out in your own mind. You know, the, the God the Father there in his celestial existence talking to the Son, talking to the Holy Spirit and says, you know what guys, it's been really fun hanging out with you guys for eons and eons and eons, but you know what would be a lot of fun? If we could make a group of people who are constantly messing things up and they make a show called Jerry Springer and we just watch the madness unfold over and over and over again because we just don't have enough good television here within our own triune self, right? Like, do you really think conversations like that happen in the Trinity? And the answer is no. It's absurd. It further goes on. It goes back to the other thing that I was kind of dispelling in the beginning, which is this, this concept that, oh, it's man seeking out God. No, 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 it's God revealing who he is to us. Remember what I said about our perspectives being bent? We're lost without him. We're lost without his perspective. We're lost without his help, right? You see, that concept that God somehow needed to make creation implies in itself that he was not enough in himself. And that's false. That's false. It is absolutely false. No, he was enough within himself. His goodness, his character, his love for himself was enough. He's the only one <laughs> that you can say, right? Uh, I know we have some in here that have counseling training. He's the only one that you could say should have love for themselves above all others, right? The only one you could actually say that for, right? And it be not narcissism. So, dealing with the elephant, dealing here with his first verse, dealing with the sufficiency of God in himself. I mean, here, here's the bottom line. This is what I would say theologically. I don't see how you could read the Bible and think somehow that this is a book all about you. In my opinion, if that's what you really think, while it has implications and applications for you, you probably need to go visit Woodridge this afternoon. This is not a book about you. This is a book about God. You take a secondary role in the story, and you can't know you without him. All right, enough of that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right here we learn where everything started, where everything came from, okay? He made it all. So the theologians talk about this. This is exio nihil. He's creating something from nothing. You know, concept here, God speaks, and where there was nothing before, now there is something. Well, what was that like? Was it a big bang? I don't know, maybe. I wasn't there. I don't know exactly how it transpired. Right? I'm like Job taking my talking to, right? <laughs> I wasn't there when he set the foundations of the earth, but I know the descriptors he's using here to talk about it, right? Because I'm, I'm not a scientist. My job is exegeting, pulling out the story, making it plain to you. What does it say? What does it mean? And how does it apply? God created the heavens and the earth. Nobody else was there to help. 
And what that means is there's a certain amount of authority and there's a certain amount of accountability that comes with this. Um, this is made plainer, too, in the book of Acts, right, uh, to help us with this concept. To flip over in your Bibles to Acts 17, 24 through 25, here's what the Word of God says there. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it. So what you're sitting on, what you're riding home today, what you're having lunch for lunch, everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in a temple made by a man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed, what's it say church? Anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So let me, let me see if I can bring this home and put this in your kitchen today. What is packed in the Genesis 1-1? This verse is just a verse of implications of Genesis 1-1. Here is the application. The application is this. I want you to answer me when I ask you these couple questions. Is there anything good in your life? Is there anything good in your life? Anything at all? I mean, if you're struggling, at least pizza rolls or something. Like, it's got to be one item that's good in your life, okay? Anything. Can you give me 10 things that are good in your life? Can you give me 20, 30, 50, 100, 150? Listen, everything that is good in your life is there because God put it there. Everything that is good in your life is there because God has put it there. If you eat a delicious meal after this sermon today and you rub your tummy like Winnie the Pooh, you feel great and wonderful because of the meal you just had and the, and the delicate delectables that you ate, you're enjoying that because of God's goodness who made everything, right? What does that mean? Well, that means several things. One, Romans tells us that all the good things in our lives are meant to point us to the Lord. Every good thing is meant to point us to the creator, the sustainer who loves us. Every time we experience anything good, it should invoke praise from God's people. We should, we should have, when we come to know Christ, when we come to know the Lord, our default should go from what we read in Romans of being opposed to God and darkened in our understanding to now being people of praise and thankfulness. That's our general default setting. All right. Now, on to Genesis 2. This is as far as we're getting today. We're going to be in Genesis until you go home to be with Jesus, even if you are in your teens. It says here, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All right, here's what I want to get to today with chapter 2. Um, how many of you have ever heard of something called the gap theory in Genesis 1, 1, 2? Okay, Chris has. At least Chris has. Pam has. If you were ever given a Schofield Bible... Schofield Bible is an advocate for the gap theory. The gap theory basically says that there are thousands, if not millions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Okay? Now, before I give you my view and unpack this, I want to make a couple of quick statements. First statement is this. 
what your particular view on this, this is called the divide between old earth and new earth. This is a secondary issue somewhat in the church. There are early church fathers who believe Genesis 1, 1 and 2 was interpreted allegorically. There are a lot that believe that it was interpreted literally. When it, literal 24-hour time span is what we're talking about. Now, I personally am of the persuasion that this is not an allegory, that this is the literal account of creation being made in six days' time. Okay? So I think this happened in all that's made that you're aware of and that you see around you. This is, this is what I think the way the text reads because I think Moses is writing a history book. He's not writing a poetry book right here, right? You're not, you're not in Psalms right now. You're in Genesis. We don't look at the story of Isaac and say, what a lovely poem, right? We look at the story of Isaac and we say, what a fascinating book of the account of the life of Isaac. So he's writing in that same vein here in Genesis 1, 1, 1, and 2. So I think it was a, what, what is a week's time without the seventh day? Is that 144 hours? Is my time correct? Is that is that what it is for the amount of time I'm talking about here? 144 hours for that to happen. Now, here, here's why I believe that. First of all, I think that that's what's most supported in the text. The biblical text leans that way in clarity. Two, I think because of the doctrine of inerrancy, people have tried to adjust for evolution and competing worldviews and tried to make them compatible with the Bible. I can remember in high school listening to a biology professor who called himself a theistic evolutionist and I never understood him in so many ways. He loved to wear, uh, you know, outfits with interesting ties and blue jeans and I never quite understood what he was doing there. I didn't understand what he was doing with his theology and his biology either. So there was a lot of things that didn't make sense to me about him. The, uh, in addition to this, I think that we have to consider a few things. What would be a greater demonstration of an all-powerful, almighty God to take billions of years to make human beings or to make them instantly mature as they were? So what, so what I'm advocating for is when He created everything, He made a planet that was instantly mature, right? So the, the question of what came first, the egg or the chicken, to me in Genesis 1, chapter 1, it's real simple. It's the chicken. The chicken was mature and was there, right? To demonstrate this, I'm going to make an argument for, for this, that God did this in other places in the New Testament. In John chapter 2, Jesus takes water at a wedding feast, and what does he do? He turns it into what? Wine. Now... I know you're all good Southern Baptist in here. How long does it take? So you probably won't know the answer to this. How long does it take to make decent wine? Are there any Methodists in here? It's got to be some Methodists, right? Huh? Some Wiscopalians. Some of you were Lutheran in another life. How long does it take to make good wine? Months? What about from the ground to the bottle? Because you've got to get grapes, right? How long does it take to grow grapes? Years. Okay, and then doesn't it have to ferment? How long does it have to ferment before wine is good? A long time, right? A long time. And Jesus does what to make excellent wine that's never been tasted? He bypasses that whole time slot of creating wine and just instantly makes mature wine that's ready to consume. Okay? So that's a demonstration of what? That God is able to make what is mature and needed instantaneously. 
All right, let's give another illustration. How about when Jesus fed the 5,000? Let me, let me ask you this. Have you ever been in the kitchen with Nancy here, Nancy Bailson? When she says, let's, let's get some flour. Do you know what she means by that? She doesn't mean let's go to Food City and buy a bag of flour like 99.9% .9 of us do. She went down to the farmer's market and bought barley, and she's going to grind it up into flour. Yeah, that's how she makes flour and makes cookies and stuff. So if she ever brings you something delicious in a little container, you take it because it's like a cut above the rest, right? How long does it take to make bread? I mean, really to make bread, not make bread in your little bread maker where you bought flour down here at Sam's Club and you're putting water and salt and trying to cheat in the little bread maker. I'm talking from the ground raising barley all the way to being pounded out into flour and then cooked in an oven and then served piping hot fresh to you. How long is that process? Who's, who's got agriculture degrees in here? How long does that take from ground to table? What do you think, Thomas? A year. It would take a year to yield you a loaf of bread. And if we were feeding 5,000 people loaves of bread so that they would go home full, maybe longer, right? Or at least more, more filled would be needed, right? And what do we see happen? Jesus blesses the bread and instantly the miracle happens of their making and tearing bread and he's bypassing that whole year of cultivation. So I don't believe the gap theory for multiple reasons. One, because of the way the narrative lays in the text there, the structure of it being historical, not allegorical. Two, because Christ himself demonstrated for us that he is able to bypass the growth stage and go directly to maturity in at least two miracles, if not more. And three, rejecting the gap theory makes much clearer the awe-inspiring God that we serve and His ability is unlike any that exist or live. To close this sermon, I want, to, I want you to do something with me for just a minute, okay? I want everybody to just close your eyes for just a minute. Close your eyes. And I want you to imagine with me, you're sitting in front of a beautiful painting. You probably have a painting in mind. Think of that painting for just a minute. Envision that painting, how beautiful it is. Admire the brushstrokes. See the colors as they come into full bloom. See the composition that the author was after there, the artist was after. You look closer, you see a signature on the painting, right? And you, you realize that the painting was made by a master artist who put a lot of thought, who put a lot of care into it. Similarly, in, in almost the same identical way, as we look around us now, we can see the intentional detail. Can you see that painting in your head? You can see it, can't you? All right, you can open your eyes now. Or maybe some of you won't open your eyes. I may have lost you right there. You may have been asleep. In the same way, in the same way, when you walk out of this building today and you look to the left and to the right, slow down and see. Slow down and see. Do you think it is a random accident that this planet is spinning in the Goldilocks zone? That's what they call it. That's one degree too close to the sun, everything is burned and consumed. One degree further back from the sun, we all freeze to death. We lived and spin on the perfect axis at the perfect speed and at the perfect degree for life to happen. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like the signature at the bottom of a painting, doesn't it? 
What about the water cycle? How our water goes up, comes down, gets reused, recycled. We've not lost any water except what the astronauts lost in space. Those dang astronauts, right? How did that all come in that way? How does it all continue to just perfectly filter itself out and around without us polluting it too badly, right? Our farms and pesticides, it looks like a signature of a master to me. How about the beauty? The beauty of human relationship. That we don't, we're not alone on this planet. You know, I was, I was in Memphis riding an elevator up, and we were going up to the Bass Pro and the Pyramid. Anybody ever seen that thing? There's a Pyramid Bass Pro. It's pretty impressive. It's also very terrifying if you're afraid of heights, which I happen to be. <laughs> and I said, you know, would, would experiencing this world be nearly as wonderful or as fun if you had to do it alone? Like if there were no other human beings on the planet? Looks like a signature to me to not let people just be alone like that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you and we thank you for this text today. The creator, the sustainer, the one who makes, who is. Lord, I'm so thankful for all of those who have worked diligently to show scientifically the intelligent design. God, I saw the video this week about at the most molecular level, Lord, the the, the way that cells reproduce and, the, and how it works at a, at a microscopic DNA level, that there is movement, there is life, that there is intelligence behind how cells repair themselves and duplicate, Lord. It is utterly amazing. It looks like a signature to me, Lord. You've signed it all. God, we, we don't want it to be true. Lord, many of us have been hurt in various ways by others and we may have, uh, we may have been uh, pushing on, using that to kind of push you away, Lord, as we've read in Romans today. But I just ask today, if there's any who are far from you, God, that today would be a day they would see you, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would help our, our fallen minds that have been darkened by, by sin to, to see you more clearly, God. That you didn't just make us and walk away, you desire to love us and be in relationship with us, God. Thank you for Genesis. Thank you for the beauty of this world. Thank you for your love through the Son. In your name we pray, amen. So anyone here today is far from the Lord, it's been a while, would you like to get to know him again? Know him for the first time. I'll be in the back for a little bit. Danny's gonna be back there too. I've got a funeral I'm gonna slip out to in a moment, but won't you, won't you take today and, and get to know this creator who has signed his painting so well, who has given us much more than beauty to be seen, but beauty to be felt, beauty to be experienced, beauty to be tasted. What a wonderful creation God has made. Won't you turn to him and praise his name today? As we sing, please stand.